and welcome aboard the battleship pretension decided to do the intro a little different today <laughs> i'm scott and i i'm david bax um thank you for listening yes thank you for listening. I, I hadn't been saying that uh over on my other podcast the one where i met your mother i toyed with trying to do the intro like slightly differently every episode um i kind of ran out of every without, episode like, making a yeah, fool of myself i kind of ran out of, that's like, a tall expectation for yourself yeah i started doing it i'd start having to do it in different languages or something but uh uh that would be a good gag yeah you'd yeah. have to learn some um, very tricky to pronounce words but i think it'd be a good bit uh but no actually natalie kind of solved the problem by introducing a what i think is a better um bit which is um when i do the intro and then i say i'm david and she says i'm natalie in the same way every <laughs> single episode except every once in a while she does it really bright and, and sunny and cheery and i never know it's yeah. like it's like one time out of ten it's going to be funny but i never know what it is uh and that's a good bit actually um yeah, how are how are you, uh, Scott? <laughs> well, we just talked before the show about how stressed we both are, so let's go with yeah. that. Um, yeah, we're both very stressed. But I, I'm, you know, it's, the fall setting in. I'm getting back to the movies. Um, not that I like stopped going to the movies, but there's yeah. more stuff coming out that I am interested in. Plus, like the bearing down of end of the year stuff, so that I uh, feel like I need to. Yeah, in like May or whatever, I'm like that looks interesting. I could also catch it in three months on VOD if I need to catch it for the end of the year stuff. And now mm-hmm. it's like, I don't know. I, you know, things stream faster than they used to, but I don't know that I'll necessarily be able to catch um, Smile. That's the last one I saw. I just saw Smile. I don't know that I'll be able to catch that otherwise at the end of the year. Plus, like movie like that, you want to see with a crowd. Yeah. And did boy, you like it? I did like it. Uh, I, so I went on the cheap day at the Cinemark where it's like six bucks a ticket. Okay. In like, it's not like a bad part of town, but it's like, you know, not the best part of town. Wait, this place, is the, not the Cinemark North Hollywood. No, this is the Cinemark Baldwin Hills. Um, oh, okay. I've never been to that one. Uh, it's a pretty quality joint. They actually have really good projection and the seats are solid. But And like most nights, it's like empty, like nobody's there. But on Tuesdays, everybody turns out because the tickets are so cheap. And so Smile, which has been out for like, I don't know, three weeks or something like that, mm-hmm. was yeah. packed, completely full um which was great and yeah. especially for a silly horror movie you really want to hear like the weird reactions and in some ways like the chatter of people be like here it comes here it comes <laughs> <laughs> and so that was fun yeah that is fun uh all right well um as stressed as we all are um there's a bunch of people uh who uh, up until today worked for criterion who are uh yeah. in even even dire straits uh yeah, criterion laid off a bunch of their staff today that's About what we want to address yeah uh, that's um um I, I i mean i guess i my recent discounted purchase of moonrise kingdom didn't uh save any jobs unfortunately <laughs> but uh yeah I, I don't know what to to make of that i've, I've always um been really uh like the the continued existence and apparent thriving of criterion was something that i always took as a good sign (laughs) that there are still enough people who care about this stuff that a company like criterion uh can be successful so it is um upsetting to see them making cost-cutting measures uh, yeah it's interesting i was listening to an interview earlier this week with um the guy who runs i think acquisitions for kino lorber 
um, another like boutique label that mm-hmm. is sometimes Criterion's like right. It's they seem more overtly the rival because they keep releasing stuff on 4K that Criterion's already put on Blu-ray. So it's like they're snatching like the 4K rights before Criterion can quite get to it. Um, but he was essentially saying like, yeah, it's a dying industry and it gets smaller every year and more and more of the audience share for physical media dies off every year. And it's kind of like sort of facing an inevitable decline. You know, it's kind of like one of those things where it might just keep shrinking by half until there's still like some core left that will never die completely. But uh, it's definitely an industry that is not what it was 10, 15 years ago. Um, Criterion's particular situation is interesting because it seemed like they were releasing so many things by so many different studios and getting like, it seemed like places like Netflix and Amazon were like begging them to take their stuff. And now they have like Wally out from Disney. And so it's like as the studios and smaller distributors get less and less invested in physical media, more and more stuff gets shuffled to yeah. Criterion. And probably I would think for better and better deals because they're not, I mean, they're competing with each other, right? Cause there's so many boutique distributors now but they're not like having to beg the studios the way they used to for the, some of their catalog stuff. Yeah. Um, so quick you know, fact check the Wally Blu-ray isn't, you said it's out. It's announced or is it uh, out? I can't remember. I can't remember what I said. I don't think it's out yet because I feel like okay. I just got a press email of all things like yeah. doing interviews for it, which is unusual. Uh, for criteria no, I really. think you said it was out. That was what uh, made me curious. I may well um, have. I do not remember the things I say as soon as I say them. <laughs> It's getting to be a real problem. I'm got a lot of promises to fulfill. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, what do you think? I mean, this is what we're talking about, but like, uh, I feel like Pixar being in the Criterion is maybe like a good sign of things to come to Criterion. Um, Wally is definitely not the one I would have gone with. I don't know. What do you I mean, think I'm of that not Wally a Pixar guy at all? Um, there are like maybe two of their movies that i really like i don't like love any of them they're mostly fine um uh what i I mean is that it bodes well like disney's cooperation bodes well that like the 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 idea that some of the disney uh, other disney stuff that that or touchstone stuff maybe that wouldn't like uh feel at home with the disney label might uh maybe that will come to criterion in the future that's what i meant but also, yeah, Wally is not like I, I probably would have gone with Finding Nemo. It's probably my favorite uh, Pixar. Yeah, I think the stuff that would be interesting would be like the older Disney stuff. Um, but unfortunately, like any contract with Disney, you're not going to say anything negative about the production of any of those movies. And so like really investigating some of the circumstances and culture under which they were made would be like super interesting. Criterion would be well situated to do so. But Disney's never going to agree to it. Right. So um, it's kind of like the problem they run into sometimes with more recent films where the directors are still alive, they have, they want to get director approval for everything. And some directors are more amenable to like genuine criticism and scholarly analysis than others. Um, it was interesting that like in their Wong Kar Wai box set, they got rid of the Tony Rain's commentary on Chunking Express that was on their first Blu-ray release. And it seemed like a little bit like maybe appeasing Wong Kar Wai who like had his huh. own series of weird demands for that set anyway um and he sometimes knows that with their like their newer stuff is that like it's just like it has a couple interviews has like a very flowery essay but it doesn't have like the real kind of scholarly breakdowns you get with like older stuff of movies where everyone's dead already um that reminds me of one of my favorite uh you know the uh the, that first like box set of dvd box set of the matrix movies each movie 
has a critics commentary yeah. and they get like the Wachowskis were all in favor of it, but they get like increasingly critical yeah. <laughs> as, as they go on. Uh, it's, those are a lot of fun. I I've listened to those. Uh, and I definitely give uh, credit to the Wachowskis for, uh, welcoming that, but, uh, a hard squad to the people at, uh, uh, formerly at, at criterion who yeah, lost their, their jobs today. It's, uh, um, I, you know, knock on wood, I've never been laid off, but, uh, really live in fear every day. As do I. Um, I was laid off once from when I did early shift at Nordstrom rack stocking shelves. They just really? didn't have, it was just a simple budget thing. They just didn't have enough money for me anymore. Um, but that was the only time I've ever got laid off. Never been fired. I'm proud of that. I've never, I've never been fired. The closest I came to being fired once. Yeah. And let me get all the way to the end of the story before you decide whether this counts. Perfect. I, um, this is when I was new to Los Angeles. I was, a, I, I was, you know, working with the temp agency and they kept sending me to this place. It was like, a, a it's a company you've heard of. I'm not going to say, but it was one of their office buildings. Um, it was mostly empty, but it was open all night for deliveries. Cause there was like a, like, again, I don't want to say what kind of business it was, but they yeah. would get, they would get deliveries like couriers coming all night. So basically they just like a security guard and they needed someone to just sit at the desk and like sign for deliveries from like 11 PM to 8 AM. <laughs> Yeah. And I did that a bunch of nights in a row. And, um, at one point, one of the higher ups specifically asked the temp agency to stop sending me because by the time he would come in bright and early in like the seven o'clock hour, I was like, just noticeably like dead on my feet (laughs) and just slumped in the chair. And he was like, this guy's not a good, like first face for people to see early in the morning. Uh, please stop sending him. Um, so, but like I said, let me get to the end of the story. I was going to say, it sounds like there's more. Yeah. Um, lasted maybe a week before they started sending me again. So whoever they got after me was worse. And this guy eventually, eventually was like, I guess if, <laughs> if this is the shift we're asking people to, to work, yeah. uh, this is the best we're going to get. So I was back there. So I don't, I was temporarily fired or asked <laughs> not to return. Uh, that's the closest I've ever come to being fired. The, and the temp agency told you that was the reason? Yeah. Yeah, they specifically don't because they they want me to be to reflect well on them. So they I guess to, like, to yeah to tell me why. Um, <laughs> what did they say when you came, when they asked you to go back? <laughs> uh, I remember saying like, "Are you sure?" And my <laughs> contact was like, "Yeah, they <laughs> they yeah yeah." Um, so did you like try to be more perky when you went back? Yeah, yeah, I did. I did try to be more cognizant of like, okay, the sun's up now. People are. And like in this, I'll say this was a place that's in the industry. And I was yeah. like, if you work in the industry outside of like having being on set and having call times or whatever, like this is an industry where people roll into actual offices late. Yeah. Big time. Because people are like working. Cause now that I'm, you know, uh, in like the corporate side of that industry, I do the same thing. I'm, I'm like, I'm working all the time. So I don't always show up at work at 9am. Like I'll, yeah. I get up at, six something and like I'm answering emails all morning. And then I go into the office. So like the amount of people who actually would have even cared is it's probably just this one guy, but again, something about the entertainment industry, the number of decisions that are made to cater to (laughs) one guy and with power uh, is, is pretty stunning. All right. So we've gone way too far uh, a field. I want to quickly tell you, about tweakedaudio.com. Tweakedaudio.com is where you go for professional quality earbuds in a variety of stylish styles and colorful colors. They look great. They sound great. Uh, Tyler and I generally use them each and every day of our lives. Um, 
I don't I don't know if Tyler's listening to anything um right now in uh, the facility that he's at but um do check out actually let me finish the fucking tweet dad real quick uh, um I was listening to a new album from uh I think Pennsylvania based sort of uh experimental rockers knife play the uh the album very sadly is called animal drowning which i don't like that album album title but uh it's a great album and it's not great on my tweakedaudio.com earbuds that are available at a low low price at tweakedaudio.com but if you use the offer code pretension at checkout you get one third off that low low price and no shipping charges so please go to tweakedaudio.com and use the offer code pretension if debit is your go-to card discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too so check out discover cashback debit a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases that's right cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore whether it's a movie date flea market find or midday latte you can start earning cash back and did i mention there are no fees period Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank member FDIC. Scott, we're back. Hello. Let's get into it, shall we? But first, I do want to tell you about Tyler. Um, and uh, uh, if you want updates, listeners, uh, or Scott, uh, <laughs> you can go to caringbridge.org. Sorry, caring bridge, not Karen bridge. Um, bridge full of Karens. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, I'd like to speak to the manager of this bridge. <laughs> this is ridiculous. Uh, no, caringbridge.org slash visit slash Tyler and Jennifer Smith. That's where you can find out what's going on with Tyler. It's also where you can find the GoFundMe. I, there's been a lot of generosity from a lot of people. I would, I really appreciate it. I know, I know Tyler's family really appreciates it. But also there's a competitive part of me that wants to get to that 100K goal. So um uh, if, if you, if you are, are able, um, know that it's appreciated and needed because, uh, long-term medical stays, uh, hospital stays and stuff like that are very expensive. So, uh, caringbridge.org slash visit slash Tyler and Jennifer Smith. Okay. Scott, what are we here to talk about? Once again, you have come up with the topic. Yeah. I, you know, Tyler and I came up with topics for, uh, how long we've we been doing this? 15 years. Now it's your turn. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, so this was, uh, more top of mind when I came up with it and then everybody stopped talking about this movie, but around the time that blonde came out, if you can remember ages ago, uh, there was a lot of discussion about how, uh, Marilyn Monroe's representative of the movie and was it fair and was it not? And it just got me thinking more in general about, um, the degree to which it matters more broadly. And I, I mean, ultimately the answer is going to be like, you know, typical battleship pretension style, you know, we'll come to some indistinct conclusion that's like, yeah. well, it's different for everybody. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I think even more than being different for everybody, I've noticed it just tends to be different about like how much any person cares about the subject at all. Cause like, this isn't a discussion that comes up when it's like, I don't know the crown, for example, I don't hear a lot of people talking about uh, the historical accuracy of that or not. Um, trying to think or the other... like personality accuracy of that. Yeah, I'm trying to think of other, something other that's kind of like popular and historical. But I, you know, certainly a lot of film people are very invested in and know a lot about Marilyn Monroe. And so, like the fact that it doesn't represent um, her uh, charitable work or whatever, like I'm not sure it fits in the framework of the film. And I'm not sure if you didn't know that it would really like matter. I'm more sympathetic to like the cases where people saying like, it doesn't represent her talent that well, which it doesn't. Um, but it did give me thinking more broadly about like 
trying to think of instances where I really cared about the historical accuracy or not, or whether it kind of like did justice to a certain person who at one point was alive. Uh, well, to speak specifically to the blonde and Marilyn Monroe thing, again, there's also, in addition to all the other reasons you mentioned, there's also been um, a, a, a large reckoning and um, uh, uh, increased awareness of the plight of women in, in Hollywood and in this industry. And um, I, I, this is me not having seen the movie, just uh, uh, the idea of taking someone who is now, I think increasingly seen as someone who was victimized in a lot of ways right? or, um, and, and not presenting her, um, in a strong or respectable, uh, uh, respectful, I should say, uh, way, I think, uh, it pushes buttons for, for certain people because it seems to be not just about Marilyn Monroe in particular, but, um, uh, uh, about the movie sort of underscoring an ongoing problem. Uh, and I don't mean underscoring in terms of drawing attention to it. I mean, uh, perpetuating, uh, an ongoing, what people see as an ongoing problem, I think is an ongoing problem, um, in, in this industry. Yeah. What's interesting about that is that it actually speaks to a different tendency of the industry, which is to like misread the room because Andrew Dominic's been trying to make that movie for like 12 or 15 years or something like that. And it, you know, pitched it constantly and kept getting turned down. He said it got easier to pitch post Me Too movement because people started to view it as like a reflection of the horrors of the industry without like seeing the fuller picture that people would actually want to see. There was like, oh, well, this addresses abuse in the industry and thus it'll be a hot button topic and something that will get us a lot of press at least, if not make a lot of money. Um, so it's interesting that it was trying to do exactly what it didn't end up doing. <laughs> It's really, I mean, it's very similar to Green Book, I think. Like, yeah, totally. I think the people who made Green Book probably thought they were making something that was in step with the current conversation, like social justice and, 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 uh, awareness of, 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 of racism, racism, racism mm -hmm. and inequality, uh, ended up making something that is, I would argue, uh, kind of a racist movie. Yeah. Well, and more so like the, uh just it winning the best picture oscar like yeah yeah academy trying to put forward this image i mean it was the same thing that we all felt like happened with crash of like trying to put forward a certain image of or driving miss daisy with that matter trying to put a certain progressive image forward without really identifying that like no it has to do more than just like say there is racism yeah yeah you know i was thinking about this is off topic already but that's battle protection I was thinking about Rain Man recently and that how sense. like when Rain Man came out, I mean, I was pretty young, but I feel like it was like it in among other things heralded as being like, what we would now say like autism visibility, autism yeah. representation. And I think now that like, I think autism um, and, and, and that sort of autism spectrum has become even more, people have become even more aware of it. Now Rain Man feels almost, I think kind of, a little bit insulting, like, like a caricature in, in some ways and, and, and maybe, um, uh, perpetuating again to, to, to use that word, um, some like negative or unhelpful stereotypes about autistic people. Um, it's just interesting to see that sort of thing change. And I feel like both things could be true at the times that they were true. 
Yeah, for sure. And what's interesting about Rain Man is it apparently, because it was such a big hit, formed such a distinct and inaccurate version of what autism kind of manifests Mm -hmm. in people. And so, like, now anytime autism comes up, like, that's the image some people have, even people who haven't seen the movie, because even beyond the movie's impact, I think it's, like, embedded and repeated in other mediums and other uh, movies and TV shows and anything else. And so that so people becomes, think that any autistic person is like a secret prodigy. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Whereas that's like yeah. exceedingly rare. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Uh, you know, I was trying to think, I don't know why I keep doing this lately. Um, but I keep thinking of examples of examples of television. Um, well, you love TV. We know that. I, I mean, I don't any, I used to, <laughs> lo- I used to love TV. I went through a big period of being like, uh, Look, here's I've said this before. You can probably find me tweeting versions of this very at various points. People in general were too hard on the lost finale and too praising of the Breaking Bad finale. And those two reactions have made television in general less interesting over the past <laughs> five to 10 years. That is my, that is my point of view is that that, like uh, people seem to celebrate the things that are least interesting to me about television and then less interesting television keeps getting uh, promoted. But um, the pandemic did like being just home all the time for a year plus um, did get me back into TV. And I've, I've kind of stayed a little bit back in um, catching up on some, some stuff uh, for um, spooky October month. I watched the first season of american horror story and i'm currently watching the first season of castle rock um but yeah so i'm getting back in but anyway so tv examples there are a couple of recent ones uh one i thought of and one uh natalie thought of um the uh, jeffrey Dahmer miniseries that just finished or is currently airing i can't remember um there was a lot of uh debate and a lot of uh outcry from the families of jeffrey Dahmer's victims of um the morality of of depicting uh, them and their deaths. I didn't, I don't watch, like I said, I didn't watch the series, so I don't know how, um, much the victims were depicted, but I know like the victims families were depicted. The people who were still alive were, were depicted in like the, the court scenes and stuff like that. Um, so that came up and then Natalie brought up, uh, um, the Pam and Tommy miniseries, which I also didn't watch, but, um, which, but Pam Anderson and Tommy Lee have both been, uh, have both objected to, to that. It was not, you know, uh made with their uh consent or or approval um so those are just some recent examples yeah the jeffrey Dahmer thing is really interesting because of how that's kind of like been playing out in the public forum um and i i haven't haven't seen the show because of course i haven't um but i i do like i mean i've always been uneasy about the whole true crime drop uh genre and mm-hmm. you've mentioned Natalie's perspective of like it, it confirm. I think you said like it, to her or at least to some women, it confirms that uh, fear, internal fear that the world is as bad as they imagine it to be kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I think is interesting, but I do think there's something, I don't know. There's, I feel like there's other ways to explore that idea without constantly churning through other people's trauma for like your own entertainment and so yeah. I don't, it's always kind of like weirding me out and so especially like you see those scenes or like the side-by-side videos of like precisely recreating the courtroom um footage or whatever um i don't know if you've seen that but like yeah yeah that's when they're like shot for shot and like almost gesture for gesture and it's like 
I don't know, like, what's the point? Like, beyond, like, being able to put that video up when you release it, like, what's that really doing? Yeah. Yeah, it's like, do you remember the, uh, do you remember the end credits of Argo? Oh, yeah. Where it's a bunch of, like, photojournalism of the time, and then stills from the movie is that there's, like, Ben Affleck saying, like, look, look how accurate we got it. And it's like, yeah. that's the note you want to end on? I don't care about that. <laughs> a lot of historical movies do that, though. Um, it was like a real trend for a while. I think it's kind of faded, thankfully, but just that like idea of doing the side by side, at least picture thing to like try. Oh to well, like, like uh, the makeup disaster right. artist, which which you hate and I think is funny, uh, did it. Yeah, um, yeah. but like I don't I, like that part of disaster artist. I feel like I even um, just saw one that did. Weirdly, the first example of this that always comes to mind because on paper it sounds like really silly, but when you actually dig into it, I can understand it. So the movie Cinderella Man um in it the cinderella man i can't remember his name james braddock i want to say sounds good uh been 15 plus years russell crowe um he like goes up against this boxer max bear who like everyone's like max bear killed two men in the ring watch out cinderella man or whatever his name is um and the family of max bear the headline version of this is like the family of Max Barry is upset because he only killed one man in the ring, <laughs> which is like an absurd thing to get upset about. But it turns yeah. out it was like mostly an accident and Max Bear was genuinely really upset about it and like threw him off his career for like a few round matches and stuff like that after the point. And it was like something he like held with a lot of shame in his life. Whereas the movie makes him not to be this like hulking killer. Who's like just looking to kill the next guy he can get his hands on. So I do understand their case. But it yeah. is one of the things on paper that's funny to think about. Uh, yeah. Um, and that, yeah, I guess that's the, because, I mean, Cinderella Man took place in the 30s, um, which is, what, 75 years before it came out? Uh, yeah, thereabouts. Um, but I guess, yeah, the family's still alive. Because I was thinking of examples like the further you go back, the less, the less, the fewer people there are to object, you know? Yeah, because um, I, I, I this is again TV, but um, a huge number of the characters on Deadwood are based on real people and have their names. But like, they're not they're wholly original characters. You know, the right. real Al Swearingen was not some like Machiavellian, <laughs> you know, behind the scenes like puppet master. Uh, or soliloquies to nobody. <laughs> yeah, about the state of man, <laughs> or to a Native American's head, a severed yeah. head. Yeah, um, yeah. They just used uh, Mills. Just kind of used some some real figures, but like it's really interesting when you when you start to look at how many people how many characters on that show are actually like named as the real people uh, who were in Deadwood at the time. But it, that's, it kind of ends there in terms of the comparisons, obviously with like Seth, uh, whatever, uh, Oliphant, Oliphant's character, like he went on to like a political career and some other things. So he, he's a little bit more accurate because mm-hmm. there's more, more on him. But uh, yeah, I don't think anyone like the, I don't think the estate of, uh, E.B. Farnham is uh, raised. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and raising what an estate it is. He left them a fortune, it turned out. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but I think also the interesting thing that's kind of shifted is with like the proliferation of information, people have more ownership over various figures. Um, I don't think there was like an overt controversy, but I feel like there was a lot of attention on like the Harriet Tubman movie, which I didn't see. But um 
it's on, unfortunately is not very good right that's that's why i didn't see it um but there was just a lot of attention on how she was depicted because she's become such a huge figure i think in recent years and like such a signifier of uh black history and the way that's been ignored for too long and so like there was a lot of attention on like getting that right um more distantly i think recently like the terrence malick movie the new world has kind of come under fire for um depicting john smith and pocahontas's relationship as potentially more romantic than it probably was um and i think just more and more as people are taking i mean not like a this is like the eternal fallacy of the internet as everyone thinks they're discovering something for the first time like a lot of this Mm -hmm. stuff has been known for a while that's why you can read about it but like as information is more widely available and more easy to share and more easily shared um people do tend to take a sharper eye at even things that yeah aren't doesn't immediately affect somebody uh so okay we've come up with uh, examples actually i have one more major example one that i think did bother me but okay. partially i think but i wonder how much this is like i think you and i on this podcast and 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 tyler as well have had this conversation going back at least to prometheus where like um now you like prometheus I do. I should probably revisit it because my tastes have changed a little bit. But I like. I think you got me to realize that some of the stuff that I thought was the reason I didn't like it wasn't actually the reason I didn't like it. It was just the stuff okay. that stuck out because I wasn't in the movie's thrall. Right. You know. Yeah. So like the characters acting stupid or whatever, I could. I would. That wouldn't bother me if I were more into the movie. So sometimes I wonder if like do historical inaccuracies uh, bother me more because i don't like the movie i'll give two examples um that i should have looked up the woman's name but i can't remember her name who wrote um uh mary poppins uh the movie saving saving mr banks emma, yeah. emma thompson played her right right yeah um uh that one kind of bothered me because she like it it the the movie makes it seem like she came around and was won over by walt disney's vision for her story which is not true like she was never okay with it um that one bothered me on the other hand i wasn't that bothered by the depiction of bruce lee in once upon a time in hollywood because i was into the movie more and i was like ah you're making a big deal out of like whatever so i i don't know that i don't know how much that is um uh I don't know which of those is more the right reaction, but right. Uh, it does. I think for me sometimes have, it has to do with the quality of the movie around it. Yeah. It's I easier think to criticize if you don't like the movie. Yeah. I mean, it, it might just fall under what Matt Sawyer cites as termed um, stuff. You don't like when you already don't like the movie, which is something I think about a lot in terms of like, do I really not like that? Or are there larger issues at play? Um, the saving Mr. Banks thing, maybe think about because Alan Moore has been in the press this week that like someday someone's going to make a movie where they do the same thing to Alan Moore (laughs) and it's going to be like (laughs) long after Alan Moore is dead, there's going to be something of him like tearfully alone watching the Watchmen miniseries and be like, you know, they kind of got it. Um, (laughs) the funniest thing to me about Watchmen is that, I mean, I, I guess it takes three to make a real pattern, but both Zack Snyder and Damon Lindelof seem to have convinced themselves that they would be the exception and that he would like what they were doing, even though he's yeah. like, he's, they, they, I guess you need a big ego to become Zack Snyder or Damon Lindelof in the, in, in this world. But uh, uh, it's funny to me that they just think like, no, I, I get, I get him, but I get, I get him so much that I'm going to win him over. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, I think you'd have to have that degree of like hubris to even take on the project. And like, you already know that it's going to come under tons of scrutiny and you yeah. know, that everyone's going to be at your throat anyway. So like, if you can convince yourself that much, then yeah, what's winning over Alan Moore in the screen things. The really funny thing that Alan Moore discussed is like Damon Lindov's letter sounded like so rude and dismissive of like his concerns. He was like, yeah, I'm the latest guy ruining Watchmen. We'd love your sign off. Can you at least how to tell us how to pronounce Ozymandias? It's like, <laughs> what kind of response do you expect, guy? Yeah. Um, yeah. To your second example. Yeah, the Bruce Lee thing is is interesting. Um, I think it mostly doesn't bother me because it's like not the point of the movie and it's such like a side thing. It also, it kind of bothers me insofar as like, it's so revealing of Quentin Tarantino's ego about the characters he creates. Um, especially the behind the scenes thing where he wanted Brad Pitt to beat Bruce Lee first. And Brad Pitt was like, I don't think we can do that, man. <laughs> and so they like came to, <laughs> they, can, they came to like a compromise that it would be a truce, um, or just like be able to get interrupted basically. Um, but it's like Tarantino always has that ego about his characters that like they're the coolest people in the world and they can do anything. And so he gets carried away with that more so than I think he like really meant to like slag Bruce Lee. I think he's just like so in love with his characters that he, he's like, well, of course they're going to kill Hitler and beat Bruce Lee or whatever. Like they could do anything. But I think it was, it was more depicting Bruce Lee, not as someone who could get beat up by a cliff whatever his name was yeah um but uh depicting him as like so arrogant like he was the uh, uh he's a subject of the you're supposed to kind of laugh at him in the movie even before the fight starts because of the way that he's talking or at least that i don't know that's all a lot of people thought i felt like that i thought it was funny um but i um am also i think that this will get us back to the um uh, uh the the topic at the, the the heart of the topic is i feel like i can watch that scene think it's funny think it's funny to depict bruce lee that way but also not think not then go like oh this movie is saying that's what bruce lee was really like like i sure. don't i don't i, I don't it, but but i guess this goes back to the thing we were talking about on the on the episode a few weeks ago about um, uh, characters movies being racist and them supposed to be the butt of the joke. They're supposed to be the butt of the joke, but a certain percent of the audience is going to think their racist right. stuff is actually funny. So, I mean, to what extent does Tarantino have a responsibility to depict Bruce Lee respectfully because if he doesn't, people will, f will, will then come to uh, uh, unkind conclusions about Bruce Lee, the real person. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, I think that's why people get always get so tense about anytime there's a big new movie about a historical figure, even though like most of these movies get forgotten. I mean, once upon a time, Hollywood, probably not because Tarantino is such a big director. And again, because it's not about Bruce Lee centrally, but like there have been other movies made about Marilyn Monroe that are historically inaccurate and we've all forgotten them <laughs> because like, yeah. who cares? It's like, they're not going to be as good as the real Marilyn Monroe. And they're just like, there to kind of give us a momentary memory and capitalize on our, our memory of her. And it's like the same thing with uh, Elvis. Like I really like the movie Elvis. It's going to fade because it's not as interesting as the real Elvis. And I think that's what mm -hmm. most of the, especially movies about like actors or people who uh, were alive in a time of mass media because 
their contributions are still present and still available and they're still going to be interesting 50 years from now. Whereas like the depiction of them will rarely be as captivating. I think like, I was trying to think of other examples where the historical, um, I don't know, misreading or reinterpretation like stuck more of modern figures. The one I could think of for sure is Mommy Dearest, which um, is still kind of debated as to how accurate it is about Joan Crawford. But there's no doubt that at least for decades after and probably still to this day, a lot of the perception around Joan Crawford comes from Mommy Dearest. Um, I've never seen Mommy Dearest. I mean, the movie's okay, but uh, I, I gather you understand what it's generally about and the legacy yes, that yes. is uh, yeah. created. Uh, okay, well, I have a couple of... Um, I, I thought of a bunch of examples and I'm already losing uh, uh, some of them. But, um, uh, okay, in, in order, I wanted to talk about... Before I move on to the Bruce Lee thing, I was going to say it reminded me of something, which I guess this is TV again. I don't know how much you're... How, how big a Kids in the Hall fan you are. But never I seen know. any of it. Oh, there's a a great sketch of Kids in the Hall where Kevin McDonald is playing Buddy Holly in the moments before he's getting on the plane that he's going to die in <laughs> and playing him as a complete drunken, arrogant, mean <laughs> motherfucker. He's like calling Richie Valens like racist slurs and, and calling the big bopper fatso and stuff like that. He's just like depicting buddy holly as the worst person imaginable right before he's about to die in this plane crash it's that's such a funny idea to me um but i i can't imagine uh if tarantino did that people would be up in arms um the next one i was going to uh to get back to elvis did you feel because i liked elvis a lot but did you um feel that maybe uh the the movie was like too it was it was kind of overcorrecting and like trying to be aware of the criticisms about Elvis in terms of um, racism and, and and things like that, and going out of its way to depict him as being friends with and at home among black people right. in so many ways. It, it, that felt like a little bit of like uh, um, overprotesting. I mean, it's it's definitely got big like approved by the estate vibes on it, right? It's like. There's no doubt that the reason there hasn't really been a big Elvis movie ever is because nobody could also pl- could please the estate and still pr- put together like an interesting story about a really complicated, in many ways, problematic guy. Um, and the movie definitely like skates over huge sections of time to like mm-hmm. escape some of that and hones in on the times where he was like either coming up and more struggling or like during his comeback and like going through that whole experience. And from what I understand, like even kind of simplifies those periods. Um, but uh, I, I didn't really have a concluding thought to that other than to say like that it works because it's a, it's a good movie and it's a good entertaining movie. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. um, I, whatever like histories it perpetuates that aren't accurate at the same time, it like it's going to fade fast enough because at least even to me when i was watching i was like way into it and like uh really moved by it but then at the end it shows like that brief clip of the real elvis and like oh yeah that's that's what i really care about right it's like you know three years from now anytime i get a jonesing for elvis stuff i'm going to put on the music put on the movies put on the concert whatever i'm not going to watch elvis probably ever again um oh i might watch it again um i don't i don't re-watch movies like i used to 
I think uh, I, I'm too much uh, invested in like, I'm getting older and there are still so many movies I haven't seen. I have to like watch more classics uh, and uh, I don't spend as much time re- revisiting movies as I, as I used to, which that's also a part of cinephilia. I should do more of that. Um, so I want to talk about uh, the idea of, you were talking about mommy dearest and it got me thinking of like, has there like how many times has there been a person that the culture at large felt one way about, and then a movie came out and effectively changed people's minds. Right. The most recent, or the, I mean, it's, I guess five years ago, but the example I can think of is I Tanya that like to, you know, it, Tanya Harding was the butt of the joke for so long. And I feel like I, Tanya, while also poking fun at her and her, right. and her family, um, uh, in, in enough people's eyes did, uh, humanize her enough that I don't think you, there is a baseline assumption of how the culture feels about Tanya Harding anymore. Yeah. That's a good point. Oh man. I, I know there's examples of this and I, I mean, besides mommy dares, which I mentioned before, um, but uh, like other examples like that, where it's like something cast things in a different light. Oh, well, thinking of TV, the people versus OJ Simpson, um, that like, there was a lot of press about how it kind of rehabilitated Marsha Clark's image of like, yeah, I mean, and that's, that's a case where like, I'm young enough that I didn't have an image of Marsha Clark, but I learned that there was one and that yeah. the show seemed to more actively change that. Yeah, I'm old enough that I definitely remember it being a big deal when she changed her hair mid trial. Okay, and that and that being like a something that Jay Leno would make fun of or whatever. Right. So yeah, I'm definitely old just because I'm. We talk about this all the time. I'm only like four years older than you, so uh, there, in most ways, it doesn't matter. But there are things definitely in that era of mid '90s when the different that difference actually does matter. Yeah. Um. All right. Uh. uh well, we can't wrap up now. I've. <laughs> Do you have any other examples? Um, well, I, the big one that kind of came to mind is like when you're thinking about stuff that, um, is, I don't know about problem. I would go so far as to say this is like problematic, but like from a cultural perspective, I can see the case against it, but is in a movie I love so much that it really doesn't matter is Marie Antoinette. Um, which I think like complicates Marie Antoinette in a useful way, but like at the same time, any cursory understanding of her role in history <laughs> would show that she's like not the she is more actively a bad person in history and like she mm. knew enough about the plight of the french people to not uh further encourage the french revolution and i don't know that i would ever say anyone's right to drag someone in a public square and behead them but um she was you know actively ignorant of the role she was playing at that moment in time and so like the fact that uh, the French booted at the Cannes premiere is understandable because um, it's such a sympathetic and such an empathetic portrait of her in that role. But I think it's also like, this also gets to Sophia Coppola just being a better filmmaker than I think people give her credit for. Um, I think Who's it's not does, giving her credit. Well, I think this is a perfect example where like the image most people come away from that movie is that she's like purely sympathetic and was just caught up in the time and so insulated that she couldn't know. But I think the movie is smart enough to be like, yeah, she was kind of insulated and that's kind of a fucked up system in and of itself. So mm. whatever, like one person's complicity or not in it there, uh, I think Sofia Coppola has an eye towards the hierarchies of power. And even though she's 
in many ways, ex- uh, exploring them from inside the castle because that's where she has grown up. Um, she still recognizes that there is an outside of the castle and that um, there's an effect that these things have on the world. Um, and in many ways, it is more problematic that people can be so cut off from the plight of their fellow man. I mean, that's um, the guile is all about really, you know, in the end of the day. So I, let's get back to the question. Cause it, these are all good, different like avenues that this can take, but um, is there, is this just stuff you don't like? Cause you don't like the movie. Right. Or um, is this a valid criticism? And on a, the answer probably is that it's a case by case thing. Yeah. I mean, I think the big example where you could definitely say it's a valid criticism is birth of a nation, which depicts a whole period of history um, in such a unfair and cruel light that um, really did have a genuine effect on the public. And even if it didn't, it was uh, very thinly perpetuating an idea of not only black people generally, but specifically an era in which they, you know, post civil war, where there was a chance of some, um, if not social equality, then civil equality, where like black people could hold roles in Congress and could like, mm-hmm. um, like hold a genuine legal right of their own that was quickly like scuttled and done away with and it depicts that whole period of history as just like chaos and uh just completely unlivable um and again even apart from the effect that it had it's just like to what end it's like it is an entertaining movie it's very i don't know if you've ever seen it but like no i've never i can see why people were so taken with it but it's not really doing anything with how cruel it is beyond just Mm -hmm being cruel and giving the wrong people uh, the roles in an exciting chase sequence at the end or whatever. Yeah. Now I've seen um, clips from it twice in two to in, in a high school class on the, an elective on the civil war uh, history class. I saw uh, clips and that, that class was taught by, I would say in retrospect, probably a certified lefty. And uh, he was definitely not using the clips to like, uh, to, to celebrate it. Yeah, no, it was the opposite. To, uh, and then I remember just in an, like first year of, or I guess my sophomore year of school, my first like real year of film school, just um, showing clips just like out of context, just to show why, uh, why D.W. Griffith's considered an important mm. filmmaker. <laughs> like it wasn't about the, it was literally just about like um, uh, the way he would use like, establishing shot medium shot close up and cut among those and stuff like that um that uh it was, it was completely decontextualized so i've never seen it i don't actually know really what the story is i just know that i don't really need to see it yeah i watched it because um at the time that master cinema put out in blu-ray i was regularly reviewing discs for criterion cast um and i don't know i mean it's an, certainly an important movie in film history so i wasn't against the idea of watching it um yeah and for reasons like this, that I can discuss it as an example of something yeah. that uh, unfairly depicts history. I, mean, I am glad I saw it. That's it. It's three hours long and, you know, there's a ton of other movies to watch. So 
just to be able to like loosely talk about it in podcasts and yeah. feel smart. I don't know. It's worth for that. Well, I don't think like some people think you're a bad person for watching blonde. I don't think you're a bad person for having watched a Blu-ray of <laughs> birth of a nation, especially with the context. Oh, yeah. Um, I'm not trying to excuse it. I'm just saying like, yeah. I was more saying it as a way of like, I wouldn't have watched, got around to it either because as much as I like silent film, I rarely go out of my way to watch them. It's like, it tends to be stuff either for assignment that's at a film festival or that like, yeah, there's some like live component that's more interesting. It's very hard for me to sit down and watch a silent film, let alone a three hour one. So, um, yeah, three if anything, is... I'm giving plenty of excuses for those who haven't seen it. Yeah. Um, I have yeah. seen, speaking of oh, yeah, the most ahead. problematic films in history, we're off topic again, but, um, right. I have seen triumph of the will, but that was yeah, also, that. that was also in film school in a class on war propaganda and cinema. So it was pretty unavoidable there. Very heavily contextualized. Yeah. Uh, although that class, I mean, that was the exception because most of that class was about America, like Hollywood's participation in, in military and war propaganda, specifically around world war two. That's mostly what it was about. And then the cold war as well. Um, so watching a German film was actually the exception. Most of, mostly we watched like, uh, um, uh disney cartoons and stuff right. like that that were laying and and looney and the and looney tunes cartoons of course um and they're like don't worry the nazis also distorted history it wasn't just yeah. america being the bad <laughs> yeah. guys yeah uh oh yeah we saw in that class there was um this was in the cold war um era if you know about the america's good neighbor policy which was about like um trying to have good relations with uh, uh, Latin America to keep right. Yeah. To try and keep communism from gaining a foothold there. The, um, it was, I can't remember. I, I don't want to say it was Disney cause I don't open myself up to fucking like slander or whatever. Um, but some major like cartoon uh, outfit made these uh, cartoons that were like for the Latin American audience that are like, just so shockingly condescending. Oh, just, of course. Yeah. It's good. I, it's, amazing to think that uh, that the american government thought these were a good idea to make friends by depicting like all latin americans as like barefooted like <laughs> uh, yokels yeah um, yeah all right sorry we're way off topic yeah, um, i think it's all fair game um yeah i don't think i actually had anything this i had some tiny reaction that wasn't even worth going back to um <laughs> I don't think I had any other major examples to note. Um, there are, oh, I guess like thinking of the new world again, there are some examples of like stuff that's torn directly from history that's sometimes interesting just because um, it's so accurate. And again, there's a lot about the new world that isn't very accurate, even though it's like one of my favorite movies. It's a good example of like, you excuse it when you like it. But mm -hmm. there are sections of the voiceover that are taken directly from John Smith's diary. Um, and it's like, it's weird that like John Smith happened to be writing in a style that just fit with Terrence Malick's style of like writing voiceovers <laughs> where it's like, I'm always thinking about the wind or like, I don't know. That's just like a making yeah. up Terrence Malick yeah. dialogue. But like, um, gosh, I feel like there was another good example of like history dialogue or like journals that was repurposed for it. But um just an example of how I guess one movie can in some ways get the broad swath of something wrong, even when it gets a lot of details specifically from it. Hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I, I didn't, I didn't come to this episode. This wasn't the type of episode that I came to with a list of examples. Cause I, I, know, was, Sam. I was kind of interested in just the big picture because, cause I'll ask again, like about filmmaker responsibility. I think I tend to, 
um, approach cinema in a way that is like a purely cinematic, like treating everything as an object d'art. Is that how you say that? I, something yeah, I've typed good. and never said out loud. Yeah, right. um, uh, uh, and and thinking about like, well, it is it is what it is. But I also understand that I have like certain privileges that allow me to do that. And also, I would say probably the majority of people watching movies don't think of them that way. Um, uh, and and uh, I guess should should filmmakers or or someone in the pipeline be keeping an eye on fact checking these kind of things? I mean, I just think it comes down to really like anything else in a movie. You got to think about what you're putting on screen and you can change whatever. But as long as you know what you're doing and you're thinking about the consequences of that and not like the consequences like social necessarily, although sometimes that comes into play, but just even like if it's worth it. Um, so a lot of things get changed in movies just because it's expedient. You know, you need to consolidate two characters into one. So you eliminate two historical figures and make up a third one just to like move the plot along or whatever. And sometimes that's done and it's like totally neutral. Sometimes it's done and it's a benefit because it um, lets you avoid the direct comparison. You know, if somebody was a real shithead and you need to depict someone in a valiant light because they're a side character who needs to prop up with the main character or whatever. Um, you can kind of sidestep things that way. And maybe that's fair and neutral. Um, but then sometimes you might be actively damaging a point of history because it's, I, I can't think of a good, good example of this, but because you're just simplifying um, what was a much larger struggle or a much like larger endeavor because you need to get through the plot in a good amount of time. Um, so stuff like that is the only thing that comes to mind. And sometimes it underestimates what an audience can take in. You know, if you're trying to simplify things too much because you feel like an audience can't uh, hang with the complications, but the complications would make it more interesting. That might be worth thinking about too. So, I mean, but at the same time, then you can do like a total parody and a total mockery of history that just like is endlessly satirical and have it be really smart and really revealing about history. Um, I didn't like the movie as much as everyone else, but I think of something like the death of Stalin, which like, <laughs> I'm sure the waning days of the Soviet union were not as amusing as it was in that movie, <laughs> but like it knows what it's doing with all that kind of stuff. Right. Yeah. And so I, I think there are a thousand ways to go about it, but you have to think through what you're doing with it. Yeah. Um, you made me think of, uh, well, you made me think of, uh, a couple of examples and I'm already forgetting one of them. Uh, oh, well, um, something about satire. I can't remember, but, uh, consolidating characters made me think of um, Ridley Scott's Black Hawk Down because I happen to have also read Mark Bowden's uh, mm. Black Hawk Down that it's based on. And I remember like the the line on Black Hawk Down when it came out uh, was that it was like Ridley Scott has gone like near experimental, you know, in, in the way that it's uh, um, uh, it's it's more a series of sound and image and and an incident more than a narrative but having read the source material there's actually a lot of narrative imposed on mm. the movie version of black hawk down and a lot of character consolidation if you if you if you hadn't consolidated characters it would have felt truly like uh uh disorienting because right. the, the you know the real uh soldiers would like 
they were going out into the city in shifts of just like a few hours at a time. You know, it wasn't like Josh Hartnett. It wasn't Josh, the character Josh Hartnett playing wasn't really in Mogadishu for 36 hours or whatever. It's a, you know, that that's, that's a composite character. Um, although weirdly it's, um, it feels weird to me when there's a composite character, but they name him after one of them. <laughs> like that feels almost oh, like yeah. it's kind of disrespectful to the other people that Josh Hartnett is playing in that movie that he's only named after the one. You guys didn't anyway. exist. You, you guys all should have been Josh Hartnett. <laughs> yeah. Um, you're a really Scott fan, right? Um, I, more well, I guess so, we're just about Prometheus, so I feel like... Yeah, I think more so the recent stuff, like Prometheus and The Counselor. Not so much Alien Covenant, although it has some interesting stuff. Um, I really liked All the Money in the World. And... I, 2049, I thought was okay. Oh, wait, he didn't write that. Yeah, um, even... Yeah, we had two thing? last year, uh, Hasaguchi right. and um, the last duel, both of which oh. I liked. Last duel probably more, but I liked them both. I definitely liked Hasaguchi uh, much more. Um, hmm. uh, last duel was kind of to me doing um, the opposite of a lot of what we've been saying here in terms of like ragging on his historical figures too much. It like I can't remember what is it, Amelia Clark? No, who's in that movie? Jody. Uh, uh, yeah, it's uh, Jody something. Uh, Jody Comer, Comer. Yeah, it's yeah. just like all these like people who are on TV shows that everyone knows from TV. I always attract <laughs> them. Um, yeah, it, it seemed to be like trying to go so out of the way to make her character like the greatest person. And it's like we didn't. She didn't also need to be an amazing farmer. Like this would have been sad regardless. <laughs> um, so sometimes I get that. Yeah. it can skew in the opposite direction of like trying to make someone so so valiant so full valor that like it's almost like condescending to the audience of like we can just like like this person in other sorts of ways whereas like house of gucci um i know that kind of like got discussed in terms of its historical actually but now i can't remember to what degree it was or wasn't but like is actively making everybody involved look at least a little like bad people yeah yeah i mean i i think um well, the, the, the complaint that I mean, the Tyler and I talked about this, I think it was a top of show topic when this happened yeah. that like, there are people, the family of the, um, uh, Adam driver's character, Maurizio Gucci. I can't remember. I sure. think it's Maurizio. Um, we're saying that the movie was like glorifying Lady Gaga's character. And oh, that's so like, that's so bizarre to have sat through the movie and to come away with that. I mean, like, yeah. she looks like, uh, the idiot. craziest person of it all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but I also like, I do also like that house of Gucci didn't, and this is more or less on topic. It didn't, um, it didn't glorify her, but nor did it paint Maurizio Gucci. If that's his name as a pure victim either. Um, yeah, um, I think my, I, I can't remember what my pithy, how I, how I made it pithy at the time, but um, I think I said that Adam Driver's character in, uh, in House of Gucci is like Michael Corleone if he were a complete buffoon. Sure. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> a he's lot the one of that... who thinks he, he thinks he's better than the family business and then gets yeah. dragged into it, but he's actually like not pulling any strings and is actually completely like <laughs> being manipulated by everyone in his life the entire movie. Yeah. I mean, a lot of that movie is like people who think they're like, godfather level people but their stories aren't as interesting or tragic as that um uh, i think that's a movie like um like there will be blood that 
if I revisit House of Gucci, every time I revisit House of Gucci, I think I will see it more as a comedy. Yeah, with, totally. with each with each viewing. Um, you don't go to AMC's, I think, hardly ever. But I'm sure you at least are aware of the Nicole Kidman ad that is played before most. I, I'm aware of it, but I yeah, I have not seen. It. I only go to AMC's for press screenings. So I'm actually weirdly at AMC's all the time, but they don't not show like, that bumper yeah. before before that. Yeah, if I'm going to a mainstream theater, um, I go to a Regal or a Cinemark usually. You should uh, or the. Uh, What's the one now that I've moved the, in Van Nuys? Is it Regency? Is that a theater? Yeah. Yes. I, I'm yeah. a big fan of the Regency. Um, you should at least watch the Nicole Kidman video, which I'm sure is just available online in some form, yeah. so that you can watch the version of the video. So the loose like thing with the ad is that she's like watching various movies from the past like 10 years and like expanding on how glorious goes to go to the movies. And it's like all scenes from like Creed or I think there's like Gravity in there, like, big, you know, big audience kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And so somebody intercut it with, instead of watching those scenes, she's just watching the extended sex scene of Lady Gaga just getting absolutely railed by Adam Driver early on in the movie. <laughs> yeah. so every time it cuts back to her, it'd be like, heartbreak feels good in a place like this. It's just like Lady Gaga, like, spasmodically <laughs> orgasming. It's uh, so great. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Um, that theater, uh, I know everyone has pointed out, is is here in the Los Angeles, greater Los Angeles area. Um, oh, really? the, the, the AMC where they shot that, I think it's Porter ranch. Um, okay. Tyler said he's been there. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's in Porter ranch, which I'm not sure if Porter ranch is its own city or if it's a neighborhood. I think it is. It's pretty far away. Cause I've, that's but, a theater where like a lot of like a 24 level stuff goes to die. Where like, once it's done with the LA run, <laughs> it finally finishes in Porter ranch. So I'm like, Oh, I could just go to Porter Ranch. No, not going there. No, it is a neighborhood in the city of Los Angeles. Really? Now I'm yeah. like, that's now I, is it closer than I imagined? But I, no, I think it's not closer than you imagined. It's Los Angeles is bigger than you imagined. I lived here for so long thinking that Northridge was a city outside Los Angeles, but Northridge is a neighborhood in Los Angeles. That's absurd. Um, yeah. So yeah, Porter Ranch in Los Angeles. I can see why Tyler's been there though. It's it's not far from uh, that hood. But um, too far for this guy. Yeah. All right. Well, I think we've uh, we've solved the issue. So you're welcome, everyone. Academia. We got all know figured what to out. Do. Don't need to write any books That's or teach your any classes. Marching orders going for propaganda anymore. We got to figure it out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you can find uh, you can find us at the Battleship Retention dot com um you can find tyler's review of house of gucci which he was definitely not as into it as i was um if you want to go back and look for that uh at battleshipretention.com you can email excuse me david at battleshipretention.com or tyler at battleshipretention.com my other podcast is called the one where i met your mother uh and it's a a, a podcast in which my wife and i watch an episode of friends and an episode of how i met your mother every week we're nearly at the end of season three of friends we already finished season three of how i met your mother so we're filling in how i met your mother's slot with of course old episodes of the uh former uh, food network uh, quote-unquote reality show mystery diners uh obvious sub uh there uh, so check that out uh, Battleship Retention or wherever you find podcasts email me at david at com or no I already said that part but I didn't say it was my Twitter which is at Davey Pretension follow that uh, Scott where can people find you should you want them to uh, yeah still Letterbox is the way to go you can read my um, very ecstatic and semi-coherent piece on Stars at Noon which is the best freaking movie um, it's so good it, it's so good it's also one of those movies that's so good and so 
misunderstood and maligned that I like every time I talk about it and obviously I'm just like giving into it now because who cares but every time I talk about it I just like have to resist just turning it into just like shitting on everyone who dislikes it because it's like yeah I think I had I'm I'm definitely more aware of that sort of stuff than I used to be as a, as a film person, like more aware of how other people feel and how movies did at festivals. But I think I had forgotten that stars at noon was poorly received at first. Um, so I didn't have any of that baggage when I went in and it was only after people started seeing it and started saying like, it's better than everyone says. And I was like, Oh, right. I guess people didn't like it, but I don't know why you didn't, I don't know why people didn't like it. Sometimes you can just tell though, like I can watch stars at noon and be like, I can tell a lot of people dislike this movie for a lot of dumb reasons. Um, so I, I think I'm bad at that. I'm, I'm definitely, yeah. I think I'm, I'm bad at, you just like come out saying like everyone must love this. I mean, I definitely of not love, but I was definitely in the moment. I've talked about this in the podcast before too. I was surprised that so many people didn't like the rise of Skywalker. Cause I thought it was a perfectly fun time at the movie at the movies, you know, and yeah. it was only after I started reading reactions and reviews that I was like, Oh, right. People care about all that stuff that I don't <laughs> care about. Yeah. I didn't even think to care about that. So I think I'm, I'm bad at, at, at sometimes thinking about how other people are going to uh, receive something. Yeah. I think with blockbusters, I definitely have that same thing. Uh, anyway, letterboxd uh, once a week or so Twitter's open to follow, or you can request to follow anytime. Um, I'm just staring at my shelves. Another movie that does history dirty, but well is the movie Dick. <laughs> dick's so good yeah yeah that's Uh a great example yeah anyway that's all i got and i love i mean dick also does the thing not to the extent of kids in the hall but like taking revered figures like woodward and bernstein yeah that's my favorite part of it yeah making them uh uh, subjects of ridicule (laughs) complete buffoons (laughs) yeah i love that all right uh thank you uh for joining uh me scott and filling in for tyler and being almost as good i forgot to say that part yeah i won't be here next week so someone almost as good as me will have to fill in <laughs> we'll see uh thank you at home for listening we'll get i won't get you next time but you will yeah bye bye This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 